This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with David Vine, who is an Associate Professor in Anthropology at American University in Washington, D.C. David joined me in the studio to talk about his book, Base Nation, How U.S. Military Bases Abroad Harm America and the World. David was in Melbourne for the Independent and Peaceful Australia Network's National Conference. And you're listening to 3RRRFM. This is the show Uncommon Sense with Amy Mullins. I'm absolutely delighted to have with me in the studio in Melbourne, David Vine, who is Associate Professor of Anthropology at the American University in Washington, D.C. And David is here for the Independent and Peaceful Australia Network's National Conference, which uh, is occurring, and he's very generously provided his time to talk about well, a really interesting topic that's often not discussed. Base Nation is the title of your book and uh, and it's talking about America's bases overseas. So thank you so much, David, for joining me. Thank you. It's really a pleasure. So you've written two books and they're both related. So we'll hopefully draw on both of the topic areas. But uh, obviously this Base Nation, how US military bases abroad harm America and the world, and the other, which is Island of Shame, the secret history of the US military base on Diego Garcia. So, David, first of all, I'd really like to talk about bases and what they are, um, because as we also know, the definition changes for different countries and it has shifted over time. But it has been almost a colonial tool, hasn't it, to to conquer territories and displace people. And I'm just interested to hear more about it from you in terms of where this kind of military base phenomenon began and uh, and then we'll yeah, move into the American context. It's really an ancient phenomenon that goes back to empires of thousands of years ago, um, you know, the Egyptians, Roman empires, um, all the European empires uh, and their expansion across the globe, uh, especially after 1492. Um so we see a succession of world powers using, as you said, using military bases to conquer territory and in the process frequently to displace peoples, um, frequently indigenous peoples. And it's actually rarely acknowledged that the first U.S. military bases abroad were those in North America, which being here in Australia seems particularly pertinent given the role of military bases in conquering territory and in the genocide of native indigenous peoples from this continent to the Americas. Indeed. And let's uh, draw out some of that information around America's history of bases, because as you say, America expanded itself and its territories through bases outside of the original territory of America. Exactly. Uh, in my book, and folks can take a look, there's a series of maps um, available on the website, which is www.basenation.us, basenation.us. Uh, there's the map I'm probably most proud of is one that shows Native peoples' lands prior to the establishment of the United States. And then overlaid on that are U.S. Army forts, as they were called then, U.S. Army bases um, in North America that allowed and enabled the expansion of the United States across the continent, um, displacing uh, indigenous peoples in the process and and taking the lives of literally millions. 
Mm. And what time period was this just to jog our memories a bit? Yeah, apologies. No, that's um, okay. This uh, so so the United States gains its independence from Britain in 1776, or declares independence in 1776, and. Basically, immediately uh, after the the war, the Revolutionary War, the War of Independence, uh, the U.S. begins expanding westward from its original thirteen states, which were pre- previously colonies, and uh, bases become, as one scholar has put it, the pry bar of U.S. expansion mm. uh, that pries uh, indigenous nations uh, from their land, uh, displacing them further and further west. Uh, and again, um, leading to uh, immense destruction and death in, in Native people's communities. Exactly, and the legacy of which is still here today. Sadly. Yeah, and uh, and I noticed in your book that at Fort Harmer in 1785 was the first base. I think that's right. Yeah, and, uh, and interestingly, the U.S. conducted a lot of activities which, although they weren't necessarily bases, they were establishing ports and access in China and Japan in the 19th century, which is quite uh, amazing to think of when we think about China as quite a closed country. Indeed, and it's also particularly relevant because there has been some attention in recent years to the uh, so-called Asia pivot that the United States has been engaged in uh, under President Obama initially. Uh, this, I think, is it's, it's actually, as, as you're pointing out, important to, to see the ways in which the United States has been pivoting to Asia for decades and, and really since the 19th century uh, at least as early as 1842, if not if not earlier, uh, you see the United States attempting to rival the European empires for uh, economic control in East Asia. Um, initially, of course, the United States uh, didn't rival uh, Britain or, or France, for that matter. Over time, over the course of the 19th century, U.S. power grows, and you see a growing U.S. presence outside of North America with a growing number of bases uh, that uh, expands quite dramatically in 1898 when uh, the United States defeats the remnants of the Spanish Empire and claims uh, both the Philippines and Guam, uh, Puerto Rico and the Caribbean and a few other islands. Mm, Indeed. And there's, I guess, a, a long history also of other foreign countries establishing bases in America um, much previous to this this area that we're talking about. So in your book, you, you mentioned that France established a base in South Carolina in 1562. So as we've just shown, it really does have a, a very long and interesting history. Now moving to the modern times of the 20th century, an example of an American base that is particularly pertinent and still very relevant today is at Guantanamo Bay in Cuba. Now, could you share with us the history of how America managed to acquire this area, this bay in Cuba, and the toing and froing between the Cuban government and the, the various agreements that they've had? Because I know that, as you've just mentioned, Spain and that uh, Spanish conflict had some influence on those events. Yeah, so at the time, in 1898, Spain controlled uh, the entirety of Cuba as a colony, and uh, the the origin of the Spanish-American War is is complicated and and somewhat disputed, but 
basically in Cuba, uh, the United States came to support Cuban rebels seeking independence from Spain. Uh, but what happened after those rebels gained independence and after the United States in the process defeated Spain in not just Cuba, but in Puerto Rico, Guam, the Philippines, what happened was that the U.S. began exerting effectively colonial control in Cuba, mm -hmm. um, beginning by seizing Guantanamo Bay and establishing a military base there, which ironically enough, is where uh, Christopher Columbus landed on his second voyage to the Americas uh, several hundred years earlier. Um, but essentially what, what the U.S. did was it began to uh, exert control over the, over the Cuban government and force them into an agreement that uh, essentially it's a lease, like people uh, rent apartments or homes, uh, it's a lease where uh, Cuba can never throw the U.S. out, at least officially, according to the terms of the lease. The U.S. pays about $4,000 a year um, earlier. It was a, a fixed sum in gold. Um, and for years, the U.S. has sent a check, which the Cuban government doesn't cash because they don't accept the uh, legitimacy of, of this agreement that has effectively been imposed, imposed on the Cuban people for long before the Cuban Revolution, uh, the Cuban, uh, the Castro-led Cuban Revolution. And I think it, it is, as, as you pointed out, sort of a illustrative case because this is a clear case in which the United States is occupying foreign land against the will of the local government, against the will of the local people. And uh, more, uh, more of the global-based network than many people acknowledge is based on this sort of occupation uh, against the will of locals. Mm. And, I mean, it's undermining sovereignty and the, the whole concept of national sovereignty, isn't it? Indeed, indeed. Uh, and that, I think, is a, a critical question. In many cases, uh, local governments, um, national governments, welcome the United States officially. Some locals would disagree with that. And I think, you know, most of the current global network of what are now around 800 U.S. military bases outside the 50 U.S. states in Washington, D.C., um, most of them were established during World War II and in the early days of the Cold War, meaning most of them were established in Germany, Japan, Italy, and then later in South Korea, um, initially in, in Germany, Japan, and, and Italy, you see the United States occupying these countries at, at the end of the war. Um, and it raises an important question of when, if at all, did occupation end? Uh, bases have provided the United States an uh, important tool for exerting control and influence and power in other nations in the post-World War II era. They've become, as, as many, many actually compare them to sort of the colonies of the 19th century, they've become uh, much more discrete pieces of territory, but allow the U.S. to wield uh, tremendous amounts of power over, over the governments that, that host the bases. Mm, it's a colonial hangover almost, and surprising that we still have aspects of colonization really via the U.S. government through overseas bases. It is and it isn't, uh, because again, I, I do think so much of it 
uh, relies on on the occupation of of other other lands. It's surprising because we are supposed to be decades past the the, de- the era of decolonization and, and independence for other nations. But of course, you know the United States and Australia continue to occupy the lands of other people. Um, so much of the the globe is uh, is run by by countries whose base basis is is rests on on colonization um, and there are other cases like Guam and Puerto Rico that are still us colonies they got they get called territories these days that's the polite language but they are effectively in a colonial relationship with the United States another key example is uh, the US base on the island of Diego Garcia this is a British colony the last created British colony uh, where the United States created what is now a, a massive air force and navy base by displacing the entire local indigenous people, and this didn't happen in the 19th century or the 18th century. This happened about 40, 50 years ago, the late 1960s and early 1970s. The people to this day are struggling to get back home. Um, so there are actually a series of uh, U.S. bases in colonies belonging to. European powers in addition to the U.S. bases in U.S. colonies. Exactly. And where are the Chagossians now? So the Chagossians, the, the people of Diego Garcia and the surrounding Chagos archipelago, were displaced about 2,000 kilometers away, 1,200 miles away to the western Indian Ocean islands of uh, Mauritius and the Seychelles. Some have been able in recent years to migrate to Britain in search of a, a better life, uh, given that they are still barred from returning to their homes. Um, but they have been engaged in a, a long struggle to win the right to return to their homeland. Well, that is staggering to think about the fact that people who have originated in a particular location can be displaced by a foreign power and then you have to go through a foreign court justice system to somehow hopefully return back to their home. I mean, for people who might be a bit confused as to how that could possibly happen, could you share with us what are some of the rationale or the the power plays that make that possible? Yeah, there are uh, numerous ironies, and I think it, the Chagossian story does raise some broader questions about how one seeks justice in this world, uh, especially when you're a small group of people whose lives are are being uh, affected profoundly by great powers. Uh, in the case of the Chagossians, uh, the U.S. came up with this idea to build a military base on on their island, Diego Garcia. And basically, they paid the British government for the right to build that base, and they paid the British government to do the dirty work of carrying out the expulsion, which the British uh, were more than happy to uh, accede to. And in in fact, the, the Chagossians have tried to sue both the U.S. and British governments, but in the case of U.S. law, it's very difficult to sue the U.S. government if you're not, in fact, a U.S. citizen. Uh, so the only arena where the Chagossians have really gained much traction has been in, in British court because uh, it, it does remain British territory and because the Chagossians, actually most of them, are British citizens by virtue of having been born in a British colony. Mm. And do they have further avenues that they can pursue because the last challenge that they made was unsuccessful? 
So it's been a long up and down struggle. The the Chagossians on three occasions defeated the British government in the High Court in London. Uh, unfortunately, on each occasion, the British government appealed. Uh, indeed, the, the last uh, appeal went to the newly established British Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court, by a three-to-two decision, ruled against the Chagossians. But it was basically the best possible defeat one could imagine, uh, because the court established that there is no question that Chagossians could go back home. The British government has been challenging the feasibility of, of the Chagossians returning, which is frankly absurd because there have been thousands of U.S. military personnel living on the island for decades now. Um, so the feasibility of living in the islands is really not in question, but the British have spent millions of pounds studying this issue bizarrely. Um, but the court established there's no question it's feasible to go back uh, and the British government must come to some decision about whether the people can come back, can go back or not. Um, and if the British government says no, the court effectively encouraged the Chagossians to sue anew, which they've done now, um, because the British government, after the ruling, uh, concluded that the Chagossians could not return home. Um, they offered a very small uh, compensation package of 40 million pounds, not all of which would even go to the Chagossians. Um, so the Chagossians uh, have taken them back to, to court. There's actually two other suits, uh, again, a long and complicated story. But the important thing is that Chagossians are very much not giving up their struggle to return. And let's look at another example, which draws upon an earlier interview I conducted with John Pilger, because he he came into the studio to talk about his film, The Coming War on China, of which you are one of the uh, interviewees on that film. And I'm, I'm sure a lot of your research really did inform that film. And one of um, the examples is the Marshall Islands and the Bikini Atoll Islanders or the Bikinians. And um, they were displaced and moved by Americans who who were meant to be protecting the people on Bikini Island uh, under a UN agreement. Uh, And obviously there were nuclear tests and atomic bomb testing that means that it's really very dangerous and impossible really to return to Bikini. But looking at that example... What it, what are they? Like, are they a free territory, but the US is still their defence um, military protectors? Like, what kind of agreement have they, from that long legacy and, and relationship and, you know, tumultuous history, where do they stand today? So the Republic of the Marshall Islands is technically independent, um, but they are in a... Effectively, they have a compact with the United States that uh, means the United States is supposed to provide for their military defense and security. You know, in, in many ways, this is another kind of colonial relationship. The U.S. occupies uh, the Kwajalein Atoll, where they've turned it into a major missile testing range. Uh, they shoot missiles from uh, California most often into thousands of miles away into the lagoon of the Kwajalein Atoll. And uh, across the, the Marshall Islands, we've seen a long-term pattern of displacement. The Bikinians are, are one case uh, displaced for uh, to make way for nuclear testing in, in their homes. Um, but there are at least six or seven uh, groups of islands where the local indigenous people were displaced uh, as part of nuclear testing or the creation of the, the 
base and testing area in the Kwajalein Atoll. Mm. And they mostly now reside on a, one particular island, which is more dense than Mumbai, apparently. Yeah, Majuro, um, uh, or Ibai. Uh, Majuro is the capital. Ibai is the island that's closest to the U.S. base in Kwajalein, mm. um, and people have called it the ghetto of the Pacific. It's uh, it's a fairly horrific conditions, and uh, just a few kilometers, miles away, um, it looks like a U.S. country club, quite literally. Um, the base is, uh, like many U.S. bases around the world, outside the United States, it looks like a, a small U.S. town. Some cases they're not so small, um, but the contrast between uh, the conditions of, of living uh, that that uh, the Marshallese experience and then that U.S. citizens experience so uh, so close uh, to one another, um, I think again underlines some of the huge inequalities that one sees uh, this system of bases underlying, um, and again what is really effectively a colonial relationship between the United States and the Marshall Islands. Mm. And America has really transplanted its own cultures into these bases that they host. And as you say, they vary in you know size and quality. But one of the stats that I found quite surprising was uh, that worldwide, the US military runs more than 170 golf courses. And it also has a whole range of cinemas that have the latest Hollywood films. Um, They have a Taco Bell. There are all these creature comforts from home that are quite literally brought in to make the troops that are deployed in these bases feel like they're at home and not in a foreign country. In terms of what that tension might create between a foreign country and their base and their people, so their troops and staff, on an island like Jeju Island in South Korea or Okinawa in Japan, what are some of the issues that those situations have created for the local people? Because I know it's not as simplistic as one issue. I know there's you know social issues and environmental issues, but I'd really love to hear from you what you think has created the most problem for mm. the locals there. Yeah, what you're pointing to are the what many refer to as the little Americas or America towns that uh, the United States has established around the world since World War II. Uh, they they lit- literally look like American towns with, as you said, schools, hospitals, theaters, yoga studios, uh, all the creature comforts of, of life in the United States. And you know, this has uh, enabled, been an important factor in enabling occupation, um, both to normalize uh, the regular everyday occupation of another people's land and territory by U.S. military forces, um, both both for U.S. military personnel and for locals living around the bases. Uh, the impacts are, as you mentioned, complicated. Um, there are, of course, some locals who are, are thrilled to have U.S. bases on their land. Uh, they are often those who have businesses outside the gates that benefit from the presence of the bases, or they're people who work on the bases um, or uh, service the bases in, in one way or another. But the, I would say the, the repeated pattern one sees is that crimes and accidents, not surprisingly, uh, create a lot of the the tension 
um, and anger that leads to the kind of protest one has seen in, in Okinawa in particular, um, where there have been horrific rapes and murders um, that have galvanized and, and, and spurred uh, opposition that really began in, in the case of Okinawa um, not long after, after World War II and the, the, the U.S. occupation period. And there's also a lot of environmental issues that have occurred, and you give some examples in your book uh, for South Korea, not only Jeju Island, but in Seoul itself. There are many bases in South Korea, and uh, in your book at, at the time it was 83. I'm not sure if it's increased since then, but what are some of the environmental aspects of the U.S. presence in South Korea? The U.S presence in South Korea recently uh, expanded. There's been some consolidation of bases, but uh, a new 11 billion U.S. dollar base uh, recently opened Camp Humphreys that, like Diego Garcia and, and 20 other cases that I've been able to document, involved the displacement of a, a local population, in this case, a, a couple of villages. Um, and this, again, not the 19th century, this is the last decade. Um, in which displacement was taking place, um, but as you as you pointed out, uh, the environmental effects of bases are often quite severe. In short, military bases, U.S. bases, Australian bases, any country's military bases are bad for the environment. This should should be no great shock. Uh, bases, of course, uh, store and and holds uh, large amounts of hazardous materials, weaponry. Uh, and and burn huge amounts of fuel, oil on a daily basis as part of regular training. Uh, but in the case of South Korea, there have been some egregious cases in which uh, U.S. military personnel have simply treated South Korea like a dumping ground. In one case, uh, dumping uh, toxic chemicals in the the river that runs through uh, the heart of Seoul. And you know, and when, when I'm Speaking in the U.S., I, especially in Washington, D.C., where I live, I ask people to consider how we would feel if uh, the South Korean military or any military dumped chemicals in, in our Potomac River, the river that runs through the capital of, of the U.S., Washington, D.C. Um, but this is just one, one example. There have been other cases, and particularly prominent in, in East Asia, in fact, in, in South Korea and Okinawa and other parts of Japan, where uh, the U.S. has disposed of uh, toxic chemicals and um, and other hazardous materials in ways that they never would be able to do in the United States or in some cases in, in countries like Germany and, and Italy. Uh, and I think it does underline a kind of racism that one sees in East Asia and the relationship between U.S. troops in South Korea and Okinawa and the rest of Japan in particular. And let's take a step back now and um, and look strategically from the American perspective what's happening since this forward strategy occurred and now the pivot to Asia under the Obama administration. Now, you mentioned that there are approximately 800 US bases in around 80 foreign countries, um, which is occupied by hundreds of thousands of US troops. And if you're looking at where US troops are stationed, not necessarily the bases, that's 160 countries. So this is American exceptionalism in a way because you do draw out in uh, in your book that 
all the non-US countries have 30 foreign bases among them or between them. So this is unprecedented really and it's only increased over time. So from a US government policy and strategic perspective, what are some of the reasons why they continue to grow this highly expensive program? So a complicated and really important question. Uh, just to trace the bit of the recent history that's important to point out, as you said, there are a few other countries that have foreign bases. Um, Russia has some bases in former Soviet republics, uh, Britain and France and some of its former colonies, some of their former com- colonies. China has one base in Djibouti. Japan actually has a base in Djibouti. And a few other countries have, have one base in the total now, I think, has maybe crept up to about 40 among all the other uh, nations of the world in terms of their foreign bases. Um, in the case of the United States, after World War II, what you see is a global network of bases entrenched around the world. Um, and, and as you pointed out, this is unprecedented in world history. While other nations and empires have had foreign bases the U.S. collection is by far greater than the British Empire, the French Empire, any empire, people, or nation um, prior history. At the end of the Cold War, a fair number of U.S. bases do close. So at the end of the Cold War, there are about 1,600 U.S. bases around the world in about 40 countries. Uh, About 60% of those bases close uh, within four or five years after the end of the Cold War. Um, But again, a huge network of bases remains in place and deeply entrenched. The basic structure of the the, the U.S. base nation uh, doesn't change after the Cold War. And so today we see about 800 uh, U.S. bases outside the 50 states and Washington, D.C. in about 80 countries. So while the total number has shrunk, uh, the breadth of this collection of bases has expanded uh, dramatically uh, with bases in countries that previously had no U.S. military presence. Um, why has this happened? Uh, as your important, important question asked, the answer, of course, is that it's complicated. But one critical dimension is that there's a lot of money to be made from these bases. Um, by my very conservative estimate, the United States is spending around $150 billion, billion with a B, $150 billion U.S. dollars per year to maintain bases and troops outside the United States. Uh, That money has to go somewhere. Some of it goes to U.S. military personnel and to all the amenities that we discussed. Um, But a huge amount of it goes to private military contractors that build and maintain and often expand these bases. They clearly have an incentive to ensure that the this system continues, that uh, that they continue to maintain uh, these bases around the world. Um, so that's certainly part of why the system of bases has has remained in place. Um, you also have um, the sort of bureaucratic and institutional interests of the U.S. military itself. Uh, people uh, don't really make a career on closing a base. Um, <laughs> So the the military and, and and I think the other really important dimension, two really important dimensions. One is the, the sort of ideology that uh, was established in the first days of the Cold War that the United States must maintain hundreds of bases and hundreds of thousands of troops 
far from its borders and as close as possible to the Soviet Union uh, to maintain its safety and security. Um, so it's a deterrence mechanism. That was the the, the theory. Uh, that's the the ideology. That's the idea. Um, there is some evidence and some uh, reason to argue that that might have been the case in the early days of the Cold War. Although I think there's also uh, good evidence that that by encircling the Soviet Union um, with with bases uh, to de- deter supposed Soviet expansionism. Uh, this only fueled the the tensions of the Cold War, encouraging the Soviet Union to build up its own military forces um, in a sort of escalating spiral. Um, but the ideology of, of of maintaining so many bases overseas continued and continues to this day. Um, and I think that's another important dimension into why this, this system has has remained in place, that it has become a, an un, kind of unquestioned conventional wisdom, similar to that uh, here in Australia, where people believe almost as a kind of religious dogma that the United States and the U.S. military have to be and are the cornerstone of, of Australian security and defense. Um, uh, which seems to me a, a, a kind of mythology, really. Mm. Um, I am happy to say that in, in the United States, a growing number of people are starting to question uh, this ideology that the U.S. must maintain so many bases overseas. Uh, the last dimension I would point to is that, indeed, U.S. bases have allowed uh, the U.S. government to exert tremendous influence uh, over other countries, uh, the host countries in particular, um, but also other countries in, in, in the neighborhood, as it were. Um, bases are meant to threaten. They are threatening. Um, and that threat and the kind of leverage that U.S. bases in other countries provides um, has been to the advantage of, of U.S. corporations, U.S. economic interests, and uh, to U.S. political interests. So it the system of bases has been a political economic tool um, that has maintained, helped to maintain U.S. global dominance in the post-World War II era. Mm. And in a contemporary scenario such as the relationship between China and America, some Chinese have often said uh, to me when I've been at conferences, well, China is America's bank and they they are so closely and economically tied that really people can't understand or imagine that perhaps there could be a military escalation of tensions between the two countries because of that and that, for example, Donald Trump's recent threats about uh, China and manufacturing over there and America's investment in China, well, people see that as hollow. Uh, in terms of the build-up of bases around China and the American activities also with Australia in the South China Sea, how much has that created tension between the two countries and what is it that they're really doing around China at the moment? Well, the United States military is a real threat to any country in in East Asia and any country uh, near one of its foreign military bases. The U.S. military is incredibly powerful for all its um, disastrous wars of late. It remains incredibly powerful. And uh, again, what I encourage U.S. audiences to consider, and I think Australian audiences can relate, is the question of how would we feel if there was a single Chinese base anywhere near the borders of the United States? In fact, the most 
dangerous moment of the Cold War was when the Soviet Union installed a base in, in, in Cuba, a missile base in Cuba that nearly led to nuclear conflict between the, the two superpowers. Um, I, th- I think in that case, and if we ever saw a Chinese base or a North Korean base or a Russian base anywhere near the borders of the United States, U.S. citizens would call for a massive military buildup and some sort of response, uh, military response. So uh, this is why I'm deeply concerned about the recent buildup of, of U.S. military presence and forces in East Asia, um, because it's only encouraging China to, to build up its military power um, in, again, sort of increasing military tensions in the region. While the two countries are deeply intertwined economically, uh, by ramping up military tensions and ramping up military activity in, I should point out, a part of the globe where there were already upwards of 200 U.S. military bases prior to any Asia pivot that President Obama initiated. Um, by ramping up military tensions, uh, the possibility of even an accidental military clash increases, um, and the possibility of, of a what would be a catastrophic, to put it mildly, war between China and the United States does increase. My greatest fear, in fact, is is that uh, there's something of a self-fulfilling prophecy going on, that uh, there are people in the U.S. military and other U.S. leaders who believe uh, the United States military needs to protect against the rise of China, the rise of China militarily, um, to prevent war. But by taking actions to further encircle China and further threaten it with with the U.S. military presence in the region, um, it's only encouraging China to build up its military power and bringing into existence the very threat that the U.S. strategy is designed to protect against, thus making war more likely rather than less. Mm. And China also starting to exert uh, influence in Pacific Island nations as well around it in, I guess, competition. Indeed. I would say for the most part, so, you know, for for years now, uh, as China has has grown in economic and political power, uh, there's been a growing geopolitical and geoeconomic competition between China and the United States. For the most part, China has pursued this competition uh, with its economic might, um, making strategic investments, um, in some cases uh, building football stadiums, soccer stadiums uh, in places from Africa to South America, as well as uh, making massive investments in resource extraction and the like. uh, And providing aid. I'm sure they've also done a lot of that. Yeah, absolutely. The the stadiums are are part of those aid packages, uh, one of the more dramatic and probably less uh, substantive parts of the aid packages. Um, But uh, we have seen some recent growth, of course, in in Chinese military activity in the South China Sea, the construction of of effectively sort of artificial bases on groups of rocks. Mm, Um, Which is largely an airfield, isn't it? Like an airstrip? Yeah, for the most part. Air bases, uh, as far as as far as I know, but uh, the again, what troubles me is that that the U.S. response to the the rise of China has primarily been a, a military response and a military strategy to use its military power and especially the construction of new bases uh, to keep 
host nations within the orbit of the United States, which is to say within the control of the United States. Uh, and I think that's much of what's going on with the buildup of, of U.S. military presence in Australia. Mm. This is a moment where, especially in the post-Cold War era, Australia could be pursuing a independent foreign policy, and uh, as, as could other nations. And the U.S. has used bases to keep Australia and other nations as close as possible and in a subservient position uh, to the United States uh, to maintain mm -hmm. a system of alliances in competition with China. You raise a great point there. And one of our former prime ministers, Paul Keating, mentioned in one of his talks, and he's very funny, but he says Australia keeps on pulling out the marriage certificate with America to say, hey, look, we've still got our closest ally and friend here. And that's our security blanket almost, really, and to prove that we're slightly more important than we possibly are on the world stage. But there's also, you know, bases in Australia for at the time of the writing of your book. Is that still the same? Absolutely. So it's important to point out that, that Australia has, has been an important uh, part of the global uh, collection of U.S. bases abroad for decades, really dating to at least the early 1970s and the establishment of Pine Gap in particular, which plays a critical role in, in U.S. military command and control uh, operations as well as U.S. surveillance spying operations worldwide. In recent years, so the, the um, the introduction of, of U.S. Marines in Darwin is, is the most significant uh, development in, in addition to uh, the growing use of training areas, Australian training areas, by the U.S. military and a, a deepening of the importance, actually, of, of Pine Gap, um, where Pine Gap is now uh, part of an, an integral part of U.S. warfighting operations around the globe, not just in, in the Asia-Pacific region. So uh, again, I, I think this uh, this growing U.S. military presence uh, it has, of course, been welcomed by many Australian leaders. Um, but I think it, it seems to me it revolves around sort of a mythology, a of 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 the need to maintain a U.S. military presence to ensure Australian national security, uh, which itself seems to me to revolve around a sort of mythological threat of either Indonesian or Chinese invasion, um, which it seems to me uh, is based in a series of racist mm. ideas about invading Asian hordes. Stems from the white Australia policy and our fear of Japan in particular uh, in World War One, and also previous to World War One. That's why we established our own naval operations separate from Britain. So just to wrap up this amazing discussion, which I've been really enjoying, David, in America, you mentioned there has been more discussion about this issue and slight movement around it. And conservative Republicans have raised this as an issue because of the cost of maintaining military bases. And that although you say America does certainly benefit, it is still funneling money away from America through these bases. What are some of the most recent developments at the moment around the bases overseas, the US military bases overseas? And are there any areas of light where you see some change in the debate or at least an increase in the discussion? Well, I would say certain people in the United States benefit from this system of bases, from this base status quo. Again, primarily um, private military contractors that have 
benefited to the tune of billions of dollars in, in contracts to build and maintain the bases and other corporations whose interests have been advanced by the maintenance of this system of bases. I am indeed happy to report that as here in Australia where Keating and uh, before his death Malcolm Fraser and other prominent names are beginning to question the status quo of, of you know Australia needing to be shoulder to shoulder militarily speaking with the United States and follow it into every war no matter how uh, catastrophic that war might be no matter the folly and illegality in some cases involved um, in the United States there's also a growing questioning of the base status quo. Indeed, you have people on the right, Republicans, uh, who are questioning the amounts of money being poured into the system. Uh, You also have studies by uh, the George W. Bush administration and uh, a right-wing think tank uh, that have shown that the strategic military value of U.S. bases abroad has declined significantly, that the United States, given its ability to deploy forces by air or sea uh, rapidly, really anywhere on the earth, uh, the U.S. can deploy its forces from domestic bases, that is, from bases in the United States, just as quickly or almost as quickly um, as it can from any base abroad. And the extra cost, overseas bases are dramatically more expensive in almost every case uh, compared to a, a base in the United States. The extra cost doesn't justify in, in any respect um, any marginal time advantage gained. So you have people on the right who are also questioning the status quo on on sort of military grounds. Um, and then, of course, people on the left who are concerned about the more the human impacts. And people, um, I, th- I think, are increasingly seeing that the huge investment involved in in bases and troops overseas uh, is a kind of theft. In the words of our President Eisenhower, former five-star general, who described uh, investments in the military as as always involving a a theft from humans, um, a theft from people who are hungry, from people who are unhoused or unclothed. Um, so I think there, for a range of reasons, you see people questioning the status quo. There's still a long way to go um, because of the politically, economically, ideologically entrenched nature of this system. But there are many reasons to be optimistic. Another and last reason would be the tremendous opposition that bases have uh, generated uh, often in host communities and nations, also in the United States. Um, And that is, to me, very encouraging. Mm. Thank you very much, David, for sharing your expertise and insight with us today. It's been my pleasure, and I'm sure everyone's pleasure, listening and um, being engaged with your ideas. Thank you very much. It's really been a pleasure to talk to you. You've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a show broadcast on 3RRFM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and noon. Thanks for joining me.